Our New Testament reading today comes from Paul's epistle to the Rome, to, sorry, to the Ephesians, chapter 5, verses 22 to 33. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of his wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish, in the same way Husbands should love their, their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. And let's pray again. Father, we stand in need today to be made able to receive the word of God. And so we pray that now by your spirit you would plow our hearts and make deep furrows there so that the seed of your word can fall and stick and grow and bear fruit, we pray. So grant us now the inspiration of your Holy Spirit to make us ready listeners to, to read, to mark, to learn, to inwardly digest. And now, Lord, may the words of my mouth and may the meditation of all of our hearts today be found acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our only redeemer. For we pray it in Christ's name, amen. Few things so strange in the ears of modern man than the teaching of the church on marriage. Few things so odious to the mind of the modern man and the modern woman than the preaching of the doctrines of submission, of headship, and even the suggestion that the man has a unique role in leading the woman. These ideas have become hateful in our society. To even suggest today the idea of a unique headship in marriage is to be labeled automatically with that odious term patriarchal. And patriarchy has no value in today's currency. Now let me be clear today, at Christ Church we are not in defense of patriarchy, because patriarchy can mean a very many different things. But we are positioned here to defend the teaching of male headship and to speak of a necessary male governance and even rule in marriage. Well, this in the modern age is the new heresy, 
This is the heresy that's to be hunted down and to be stamped out with a merciless efficiency. And don't doubt for a moment today that the world is in an energetic campaign to expunge from the modern practice of marriage any notion whatsoever that the man, by virtue of his God-given gender, is called to lead the woman. And I understand, even as I say these words, as I mention the word govern, that you may experience a certain negative shiver, a certain sourness in your mind and in your heart, uh, recoiling from the very word and idea, because in part, there's been so many ungodly and inexcusable wrongs committed against women by tyrannical and violent and small-minded men. History has not been good to the woman, and there's no denying this. Men have been proud, and they've been ignorant, and they've been violent and abusive beasts. But despite our shameful past, all of us today do need to recognize the language of Scripture. And the language that Paul uses today in the framework of this idea of marriage is the language of governance. Now, before we look at what Paul has to say today in Ephesians 5, I do think it's important that we consider, however briefly, the consequences of abandoning God's commandments in the realm of gender and in the realm of marriage. Someone once said that we don't break God's laws, God's laws break us. And whenever as a society we veer away from God's intention and from God's design, we will always, always reap destruction. God is not mocked, the Bible says. If we sow disobedience, if we say it doesn't matter what God says, if we say we will determine like God's what is right and what is wrong, what is good and what is evil, if we sow this kind of thinking and practice, then we will always invariably reap corruption in our lives and in the areas around us. And over the last hundred years, Canada has said with increasing boldness that it does not matter what God says about men, and it does not matter what God says about women, and it does not matter what God says about marriage. And our literature concerning marriage our laws concerning marriage, our entertainment concerning marriage, so much of it is said that marriage is not a divine institution, but a human one, and one that we can bend and shape according to our own will. And as a nation, we've sown the wind, and we are reaping the whirlwind. I'm not a terrible fan of statistics, I think that they can sometimes do more harm than good, but stats do tell a story. And the most recent picture of divorce stats from Stats Canada says this. In 1926, 1% of marriages in Canada ended up as divorce. 1%. As of 2008, our most recent stats, 47% of marriages in Canada end up in divorce. And the number is climbing. 
<laughs> it's dramatic. And God has given us a mandate for marriage. He's given us rules. He's given us definitions. And when we disregard them, when we refuse to submit to his word and to be ruled by his word, we invariably suffer. And God does not intend to place us in prison by his commandments. He intends to set us free. His commandments for marriage are the pathway to freedom. So let's look together at his commands today from Ephesians 5, how the Lord asks us to think about marriage. And the first thing you'll notice uh, in verse 22, Paul says in the context of mutual submission, which we looked at last week in verse 21, in the context of mutual submission, wives should submit to their husbands how? They should do it as to the Lord. Now this is the important qualifying phrase, as to the Lord, and it's defined by Paul in verse 23. For the husband is head of the wife, how? Even as Christ is head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now it's impossible to read Paul here if you're reading honestly and to miss the language of governance. Christ governs the church. The head governs the body. The hand, when things are working correctly, doesn't tell the head what to do. Rather, it's the other way around. The head tells the hand what to do. And the church yields to Christ. The church looks to Christ. The church follows Christ. Why? Because Christ governs his church. Christ rules his church. The government is upon his shoulders, we read. So look at verse 24 with me. Now, as the church, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Now, you have to do some pretty fancy and elaborate hermeneutical gymnastics to not conclude that it's the husband's unique responsibility to lead, to care for, and to govern his wife. In Christian marriage, Paul says, it is the husband who has the authority, and he has authority over his wife. Well, why, you're going to ask some of you? Why does the man have authority over the woman? I thought under the gospel there's neither male nor female nor Scythian nor Greek nor slave nor free. I thought that we're all one in Christ Jesus. And it's true that Christ's salvation comes to all of us equally. There's no privilege there on the basis of gender or on the basis of race, but it's important to recognize that God's grace in Christ does not abolish the created order. And though Paul doesn't spell it out here, he does spell it out in 1 Timothy 2, where he addresses the very question of women and authority. In 1 Timothy 2, Paul is dealing with the matter of why women don't teach in the church. And the answer that Paul gives has to do with this idea of authority. It is not lawful, he says, 
for a woman to exercise authority over a man. Now, Paul is not talking here about civic authority. Paul is not talking about vocational workplace authority. He's talking about spiritual authority in the church, and by extension, he's talking about marital authority in the home. And the reason that Paul says that a woman shall not exercise authority over a man is based upon the order of creation. Why? For Adam, he says, was formed first, and then Eve. And so the temporal sequence of creation, as God in his will and in his wisdom devised and ordained, that temporal sequence governs and determines the seat of authority. God made Adam first to rule as king, and he created Eve as his queen to be his companion in the lordly governance of the world. These are both high and exalted roles, king and queen over creation. But authority, Paul says, ultimately belongs to the one who was created first. And Adam alone was taken from the ground. Eve was taken out of Adam, and she was made to help Adam not from his feet so that he could trample over her, not from his head so that she could trample over him, but from Adam's side so that as a noble companion in the Lord, Adam could lead her by his hand to all of the fullness of God in these exalted roles. And marriage is God's plan for men and women to find and to enjoy God together in the garden of his delights to be kings and queens over creation, but it only works well when it's done in the way that God intended and in the way that God prescribes. And so back now to Ephesians in verse 22 to 24, we read that the woman is commanded to, by God to submit to God's teaching, that he has placed the man over her as an authority, like a head to a body, in order that he can take her by the hand and guide her to God, and together, working side by side, they can order creation, and they can feast upon the happiness that God intends for them both. The husband in Calvin's words, is God's vicar. It is his unique responsibility to lead his wife and his family to God. Now, that can cause a lot of anxiety in the woman in the 21st century. When she reads from the hand of the Apostle Paul that she must submit in everything to her husband, even as the church submits to Christ, that can cause a lot of trouble because Christ can't be foolish, but husbands can. Christ can't sin, but husbands can. Christ cannot be wicked, but husbands can. And the answer to that anxiety is to consider God's command now to the husband which is to characterize the way that he governs and rules his wife. And look what Paul says in verse 25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, 
that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. See, the husband's whole attitude and intention towards his wife is to be characterized by self-sacrificial love and wholehearted, energetic commitment to her well-being and to her development. The husband, that is, does not receive a wife to enjoy her for his own sake, but the husband receives a wife to promote her and to perfect her and to honor her for Christ's sake. The husband, Paul says, in his time and in his labor and in his resources is to lay down his life so that the wife may be presented in splendor, so that the wife may become a glorious thing. Now, submitting to a selfish oath is a distasteful and it's a fearful thing, but submitting to a man whose one aim is to sacrifice his own life so that his wife can become glorious, well, that's another thing altogether. And men, I say to you from God's pulpit today, we need to repent where that has not been our goal where we've not been our wife's priest, sacrificially interceding for her so that she might be without spot or without wrinkle. If that's not being true of us, we are in the wrong. And we need to repent when we complain about our wife's spot or wrinkles more than we patiently bear with them. And where we fail to, to create a, an environment of love and an atmosphere of the Holy Spirit in our homes, where these wrinkles can be smoothed out, then we are in the wrong. Where husbands don't illustrate to our wives by example what it looks like to be like the Lord what it looks like to act like the Lord and to shine with the beauty of the Lord, where we can't say to our wives, follow me as I follow Christ, where we are so busy pandering to ourselves, serving ourselves, glutting ourselves, where we're constantly waxing eloquent on the nature of our authority and we forget that in the Lord's inestimable love for us, he had no regard at all for his heavenly majesty and for his own glory, but he abased himself for our sakes and he became our servant. Where and when we act like this, we are in the wrong and we need to repent before the Lord and we need to repent before our wives. Husbands, you, Paul says, you be the image of Christ to your wives. Husbands, convince your wives by your words and by your deeds of the incomparable excellence of Jesus. Show them by how you treat them. Show them by how you speak to them. Show them by how you serve them how attractive the love of God is and ignite their hearts with the only thing that matters in this life, which is drawing near to God and enjoying God forever. 
Show your wives, husbands, what it means to be kings and queens in God's kingdom. Show them how high and lofty a thing it is to sit on these lordly thrones of creation as God's royal stewards over all these things. Show them, Paul says, and make your wife glorious. Labor, Paul says, to make your wife shine brighter than the stars. You'll notice today that Paul says considerably more to husbands than he says to wives. And that because the the husband's responsibility is the greater and it's the more demanding. And if a wife only had the confidence, not only that her husband was committed to that mutual submission of verse 21, but also that his aim in life was in a sacrificial way to make her glorious in God. If that's what she was assured of, if she was confident in this, then her path to submission to her husband would be so much more carefree and so much more of a joy and a delight to do. Paul goes on to say that it is unreasonable for a man to hate his wife. Why? Because they're one flesh. And no one, when things are working as they ought to work, hates his own flesh. Rather, we take care of it. Now, marriage in a mysterious way, it it unites the man and the woman. This is, by the way, why marriage is a divine thing. (laughs) The state cannot make a man and a woman one flesh. The state can't do it. (laughs) As in creation, Eve is taken out supernaturally from Adam and made so in marriage this mysterious, supernatural divine institution. Eve returns to Adam and supernaturally In marriage, Eve becomes one with him, no longer two, but one. And Paul says this mystery, verse 32, is profound. And it's so profound that it serves as a picture of the spiritual, supernatural union of Christ and his church. Therefore, husbands, Paul says, As you nourish and as you cherish your own bodies, so spend your days doing this, nourishing your wives, cherishing your wives. You do it to yourself automatically. You get up in the morning and you feed yourself and you groom yourself. Paul says, do it now to your wife who is one with you and do it thoughtfully. Do it intentionally. Do it prayerfully. Do it joyfully. Let this prayer fall from your lips each morning. How may I nourish my wife today? How may I cherish my wife today? Because anything less is not Christian discipleship. And so I want you to catch today, my brothers and sisters, how high and how vaulting are the demands upon the Christian husband towards his wife. Be as Christ to your wives. (laughs) And as you live with your wives, so bear all things. 
believe all things, hope all things, endure all things, strive to make your wife glorious. And wives, Paul says, your husband is the head. He is the God-given authority placed over you to lead you, and he will err constantly if he is human. I doubt that many of you have married an angel. He will err constantly if he is human. But wives, do not despise the office of God because of the frailty and the imperfection of the officer. Pray for your husband to lead you well. At God's command, your husband seeks to pioneer a life under God for you and for your children. The bracing wind is against him. It is fiercer than you can imagine. And he will get tired. And your husband will get weary and he will grow discouraged and his own sinful nature will fight against him even as the devil himself will seek to destroy his intent to serve you. But you wives, you as you see your husband's role, be a fountain of belief to God for your husbands and let faith rise up daily and believe on your husband's behalf that God's grace is sufficient for the challenge for him. Believe that God holds people's hearts in his hands and he shapes them and he turns them wherever and howsoever he pleases. Wives, as you consider marriage and as you submit to your own husband, let your eyes be to God and believe that God is able to make your husband an incalculable channel of blessing to you and to your children and your wider family. This is the way that God's intention for marriage works and there is no other way. And so now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think according to the power that works in us, to him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. In the name of the Father and in the name of the Son and in the name of the Holy Spirit. Amen.